The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, Ishers, it's Jamie. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I want to thank Abby R., Heather S., Tatum H., Sam M., Taryn N., and Kara M. for becoming Patreon supporters. You guys rock, and I appreciate you. On May 1st of 2010, 24-year-old Shannon Gilbert of New Jersey City, New Jersey, arrived in Long Island, New York, around 2 in the morning. The young woman was working as an escort, and her client resided in a beachfront community known as Oak Beach. Hours after arriving, Gilbert made a frantic 911 call. They're trying to kill me, she screamed to the dispatchers. Her breathless voice revealed one thing. Shannon was running for her life. Law enforcement could never have predicted this single call would lead to a string of grim discoveries and a puzzling investigation spanning more than a decade. Join me as I walk you through the case of the Long Island serial killer. takes us to two private beachfront communities off the southern coast of Long Island, Oak Beach and Gilgo Beach. Both hamlets are on the eastern end of Jones Beach Island, a barrier island that protects the south shore of Long Island from the Atlantic Ocean. Jones Beach Island is also home to Jones Beach Amphitheater, a popular concert venue since the 1980s. The 15,000-seat venue is an open-air arena suspended on water which attracts big names like Aerosmith, James Taylor, and Jimmy Buffett. Oak Beach was first inhabited in the early 19th century by marshbird hunters who built shacks for short stays. In 1872, a building was constructed to house the U.S. Life-Saving Service, which would evolve into the U.S. Coast Guard in 1915. Gilgo Beach was founded by former High Hill Beach residents who were uprooted during the construction of Jones Beach State Park. Oak and Gilgo Beach are nine miles apart. They were both once lined with cottages occupied by New York City residents during their annual summer getaway. It was a sign of wealth to have a second home in a trendy coastal town on Long Island. The two island communities owned by the town of Babylon are just 50 miles east of New York City. Today, most of the beach houses on Jones Beach Island are occupied by year-round residents or rented out as Airbnbs. Both seasonal and year-round residents revel in the seclusion of these private communities. The houses are spaced out, separated by marshlands, and joined by the island's sandy shores. It may have been this isolation that made it the perfect hunting ground for a deadly predator. On May 3rd of 2010, Shannon Gilbert's sister, Shiree, received a call from Shannon's live-in boyfriend, Alex Diaz. He was concerned because Shannon had not returned home in two days. When presented with this sobering news, 
Shannon's mother, Mary Gilbert, promptly filed a missing persons report. She even traveled 140 miles south from her upstate New York home to the Long Island Barrier Island to search for her daughter herself. It wasn't until December of 2010, seven months after Shannon went missing, that an extensive search of Oak Beach began. The search involved combing through the marshland and its native plant for any trace of her. Police canines, crime scene units, detectives, and a dive team were all involved in the search efforts. Except, instead of turning up clues about Shannon's disappearance, police uncovered evidence suggesting they might be dealing with a serial killer. Discovery of the first body was sort of a fluke. A Suffolk County officer was performing a routine training exercise with a canine unit off the side of Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach. Underneath the dense brush, he found a disintegrated burlap sack. Inside the sack were the skeletal remains of a woman who was later identified as Melissa Bartholomew. Two days later, the remains of three other women were found. They would be referred to as the Gilgo Four. All of the women had similar backgrounds. They had struggled financially and became sex workers. People in their lives knew these women were hired by a generous client on Long Island, and then they were never seen or heard from again. Remains of the other victims unearthed in December of 2010 included 27-year-old Amber Lynn Costello of Babylon, New York, 25-year-old Maureen Brainerd Barnes, a single mother from Norwich, Connecticut, and 22-year-old Megan Waterman, a single mother from Hophog, New York. They were identified using DNA, fingerprinting, and dental records. All of these women had been dismembered and shoved into burlap sacks before being hidden or submerged. The Suffolk County Police Department was clearly dealing with a more high-profile case than they could have ever imagined. In fact, this investigation would soon prove to be the biggest in Long Island history. These grim discoveries prompted the FBI to join the investigation. Because Jones Beach Island crosses into two counties, officers in both Nassau and Suffolk counties work together. Between December of 2010 and April of 2011, additional bodies and body parts were found along Ocean Parkway. In total, there were eight sets of remains. A skull and a garbage bag filled with bones were also discovered by the side of the road. Forensic investigators relied on fingerprints and dental records to identify three more victims. Among them was a female toddler between 16 and 32 months of age. She was referred to as Baby Doe. The torso of Baby Doe's mother was found 19 years prior in a town about 15 miles away. Additional skeletal remains were found in 2011. Through DNA testing, investigators were able to confirm a match between the torso and the other remains and established her as the mother of Baby Doe. The mother continues to be referred to by armchair detectives as Peaches. This is in reference to the victim's tattoo of a peach with a bite taken out of it. As of 2020, Peaches remains unidentified and her skull has never been found. The third set of remains, a skull, hands, and forearms, were unearthed on March 29th of 2011. 
A torso was found back in July of 2003 by a woman while she was walking her dog in Manorville, New York. Manorville is located 40 miles east of Oak Beach. At the time, authorities deemed the torso investigation a cold case. In comparing the DNA of the dismembered parts to the DNA of the torso, forensic medical examiners identified a match. The victim was 22-year-old Jessica Taylor, an escort who disappeared in 2003. Investigators began to wonder, were they dealing with more than one killer who used the area as a dumping ground? Or were these crimes connected somehow? Less than a week after Jessica Taylor's remains were pieced together, the body of an Asian John Doe was pulled from the brush. It was hidden a quarter mile away from the remains of Melissa, Amber, Maureen, and Megan. The condition of the body indicated the man had been deceased for at least five years. He was determined to be between the ages of 17 and 23. The man was wearing women's clothing at the time of his death, and sources confirmed he was also in the escort business. Today, his identity remains unknown. On December 6th of 2011, Shannon Gilbert's belongings were retrieved by bringing in a backhoe loader. The heavy machinery was used to dig below the marsh's thick underbrush. Items uncovered included Shannon's identification, her shoes, purse, and jeans. Her body, however, would remain in the marshlands decomposing until her remains were finally discovered on December 13th of 2011 nearly a year and a half after she had gone missing. Shannon's cause of death would remain a source of debate even after an autopsy was performed. One thing was certain, the search for Shannon Gilbert led authorities to the unexpected discovery of at least 10 bodies. Battered by the ocean breeze and tangled in the thorny bramble, these victims lay alone and unidentified for years. Fans of horror movies, thrillers, and the supernatural, this is for you. AMC Network's Shudder is a premium streaming service with a huge selection of film, TV series, and originals available in the U.S. and internationally. With Shudder, you can stream all of the best thrillers, horror, and supernatural content on almost any device, including your iPhone, Android device, Apple TV, Roku, and more. For $5.99 per month, you'll get access to what many call the Netflix for horror. My daughter and I were so excited to see that with our Shudder subscription, we were able to watch Tigers Are Not Afraid, a Shudder exclusive and best horror movie of 2019, according to Rotten Tomatoes. Join Shudder now and get immediate ad-free access to a totally unique collection of some of the best horror classics and hit series like Creepshow TV produced by Greg Nicotero of The Walking Dead. You will not be disappointed when you see Shudder's selection of international content, as well as their vast range of genres, there is something for everyone, and then some. Get started streaming the best horror, thriller, and supernatural content. Shudder's expertly curated collection includes titles like Vengeance is Hers, Comedy of Terrors, and Slashix. To try Shudder free for 30 days, Go to Shudder.com and use promo code MURDERISH, that's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, promo code MURDERISH. 
Imagine for a moment it's the year 1997. A mix of vodka, cocaine, and crystal meth has sent you into a blackout yet again. When you come to, an escort is returning your money to you and asking you to please leave. And when you wake up the next day, you wonder to yourself, how did this happen again? That's the story of Farrell M., who as of today has been sober for nearly 20 years, is a successful lawyer in New York City, and told his entire story to host Mike S. on the podcast Keep Coming Back, real stories of sobriety and recovery. Everyone loves a comeback. We all fall down, but it's the story about getting up that inspires us all. That's Keep Coming Back, real stories of sobriety and recovery. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Melissa Bartholomew's mother, Lynn, was watching CNN with her fiancé one night when an update about the Long Island serial killer was mentioned. Her 24-year-old daughter had been missing for a year and a half. The news feature included the location where the bodies had been found, and Lynn's stomach dropped. Melissa had to be among the four young women whose bodies were discovered days apart. Unlike family members of some of the other missing women, Lynn had no prior knowledge of Melissa's stint in the escort business. After graduating with a degree in cosmetology, Melissa had moved from her small town near Buffalo, New York, to New York City. She dreamed of opening her own salon and believed that relocating to the Big Apple was a way to get her foot in the door. So Melissa rented a basement apartment in the Bronx where she lived with five cats. When Melissa first arrived, she landed a job at a Manhattan salon, but the high cost of living and her fondness for shopping pushed her toward other employment. Her boyfriend, Johnny, got her started as an escort in 2006. She operated under the name Chloe and frequented the Times Square area to seek out John's. She was often joined by another escort she befriended, who went by the name Mariah. Melissa worked as an escort for three years, right up until the time of her disappearance. Despite moving several hours away, Melissa remained in constant contact with her mother and her little sister, Amanda. She visited them in Buffalo at least once a year, and even sent 15-year-old Amanda $500 for new clothes. Both Lynn and her fiancé at the time, Jeff, recall Melissa being very guarded about her life in New York City. She never revealed to anyone in her family how she was making money. They just assumed she was doing well when everyone received a brand new iPod one Christmas. Amanda visited her older sister in 2007 and met Melissa's boyfriend, Johnny. He was known by other pimps and escorts as Blaze. Blaze and his friend Mel were renowned pimps in their Midtown territory. Having Blaze's protection and familiarity with regular clients made Melissa feel safe, at least at first. Eventually, Melissa decided to handle her own clients so she could keep all of her earnings. She turned to Craigslist's now-defunct Casual Encounters section to advertise her services. Amanda was planning a second visit shortly before her sister went missing. Melissa was last seen sitting on the curb outside of her apartment on the afternoon of July 10th of 2009. Phone records indicate she tried calling Blaze, but it went straight to voicemail. When questioned by authorities, Blaze revealed Melissa had set up an overnight job with a client residing on Long Island. The next day, after countless calls and text messages met with no response, Melissa's family began to panic. 
Lynn and Jeff called several hospitals around Melissa's apartment to see if she had been badly injured. Two days later, Lynn notified the NYPD to file a missing persons report. According to her, their reaction was complete dismissal. After several more attempts, the family's attorney stepped in. He was told by an officer the NYPD was not willing to assign a detective to the case because Melissa was a sex worker. Several days following her disappearance, Melissa's little sister Amanda received a string of unsettling phone calls. The calls were made using Melissa's cell phone. Amanda was filled with a surge of hope upon seeing her sister's name appear on the caller ID. That hope was immediately dashed at the sound of a male voice on the other end. The caller asked Amanda if she knew what Melissa was doing and told a shaky Amanda her sister was a whore. Five more calls would follow, each more harassing than the last. He detailed sexually explicit acts he had done to Melissa and spoke of his intent to do the same to Amanda. Police listened in and were able to trace the calls to a crowded parts of Midtown Manhattan. The brevity of the calls and the congested locations chosen suggested that the caller possibly had knowledge of police investigative techniques. In his final call, made on August 26th of 2009, the man on the other end of the line told Amanda he had killed Melissa. He also added that he knew where Amanda lived and that he would come for her, too. Police were never able to identify the mystery caller. The remains of Melissa Bartholomew were the first to be found on Gilgo Beach. Her fate may have forever remained a mystery if police had not been sweeping the area for Shannon Gilbert. Amber Lynn Costello often used her roommate Dave Schaller's cell phone to arrange meetings with clients. The 27-year-old North Carolina native relied heavily on Craigslist to find clients and used Dave's phone instead of her own as an added layer of protection. Amber and her roommate rented a house in West Babylon, which was located just 10 miles from where her body was later discovered. The petite 27-year-old brunette relied on her male roommate for protection. Amber had been in the sex trade since she was 17, so she knew that things could turn ugly at a moment's notice. There were two types of appointments with clients, in-calls and out-calls. In-calls involved hosting a John in their home, with Dave waiting in a nearby room in case Amber needed him. There were several instances where men refused to pay or threatened Amber with violence. That was when Dave stepped in, chasing men from the house with a baseball bat. When she had out-calls at a hotel or a client's house, he would often drive Amber there and wait outside on high alert. Her alias as an escort was Carolina, a nod to her hometown. Amber advertised mostly on Craigslist and on Backpage.com, where she paid for a new ad every few days to stay on top of the escort ads. According to Amber's older sister, Kimberly Overstreet, their childhood was not a happy one. From a young age, they watched their parents muddle through alcoholism and struggle with illness. Though Amber started as a star pupil, by the time she was a teen, she got hooked on illicit drugs. In her young adulthood, she moved around frequently. She settled in Clearwater, Florida, hoping to get her life in order. By her second marriage, Amber tried to earn a livable wage by juggling waitressing jobs. When the marriage fell apart, Amber supplemented her income with online escorting gigs. 
she struggled to stay afloat financially and emotionally. After falling back into addiction, her sister Kimberly came to her rescue. She bought her a plane ticket to New York and set her up at a rehab. But a short time later, Amber fell back into old habits. She had only been living in New York for six months when she went missing. The man who contacted Amber for services on September 2nd of 2010 seemed harmless. He had called several times that evening, and Dave said later that Amber seemed comfortable with him. It was a $1,500 job, which was a higher rate than most. Amber left around 10.30 p.m., never to be seen alive again. When she hadn't returned home the following morning, Dave contacted Kimberly. She didn't sound overly concerned and seemed confident her sister would turn up. According to New York Magazine, Kimberly had worked as an escort herself, on and off since she was 18 years old. She had introduced Amber to the profession as a way to make fast money. She knew firsthand law enforcement would never take it seriously if a sex worker was reported missing. Amber's body was found along Gilgo Beach on December 13th of 2010. Several days later, Kimberly made a post on the Facebook page of a local news outlet, News 12. She reminded everyone to remember Amber as a beloved sister, aunt, and daughter, not solely as the victim of a potential serial killer. Maureen Brainerd Barnes grew up in Groton, Connecticut. The working-class town is known for its two casinos, Foxwoods and Mogenson. When Maureen got pregnant at 17, she dropped out of school and became a blackjack dealer at Foxwoods. She worked two other jobs to support her young daughter. Though Maureen initially dreamed of becoming a model, a friend got her into escorting. For a while, Maureen took weekend trips into Manhattan. Clients there paid more. Then she became pregnant for a second time. Shortly after giving birth to a son, she resumed work as an escort. According to her sister, Melissa Kahn, Maureen's friends and family had a sneaking suspicion about her trips to Manhattan. Any concerns about Maureen's method of earning money, however, went unsaid. At the time of her disappearance, the 25-year-old mother of two was living in Norwick, Connecticut. Her sister told CBS she only found out after Maureen went missing that she had really been struggling. The day after she was last seen, Maureen was scheduled to appear in eviction court. She was unemployed after applying to countless jobs. Advertising as an escort on Craigslist was her last resort. The weekend Maureen went missing, she traveled into Manhattan with friends. At one point, they separated and she checked into a Midtown Super 8 motel. Maureen intended to earn some money through Craigslist clients and then return home to Connecticut. At the end of the weekend, on July 9th of 2007, Maureen made a call to an escort friend from the Port Authority. She told this friend that she had been robbed of all of her earnings and needed a ride home. The call ended soon after the friend replied that she was unable to help. That was the last call Maureen made before she vanished. What ensued was a relentless search conducted by her family. Maureen's sister, Melissa, who she called Missy, contacted authorities to report her missing right away. Missy told the officer Maureen was last seen in Manhattan and had worked there as an online escort. From that moment on, Missy believed authorities did not take her sister's disappearance seriously, so her family took matters into their own hands. Missy's husband and brother made several trips into Manhattan by motorcycle. 
They showed Maureen's picture around to anyone who was willing to glance at it, but nobody recognized her. Missy spent most of her time combing through her sister's emails, phone records, and text messages desperate for clues. She refused to believe Maureen would just run away and cease all contact. In 2008, the year following Maureen's disappearance, the NYPD reached out to Missy with new information. A cell phone signal had pinged off of a tower located a few miles from Long Island's Gilgo Beach when someone tried to access Maureen's cell phone voicemail. This news was puzzling, as Missy's family and friends felt certain she had only worked in Manhattan, not Long Island. That said, when the news broke about the Gilgo Four, Missy had a gut feeling her sister was one of the victims. Here's something I think many of us can relate to. Buying gifts for loved ones. Mother's Day is right around the corner and Skylight is the perfect gift. Skylight is a beautiful touchscreen digital photo frame that any mom would love. I recently set up my Skylight and it took less than a minute. This is perfect for my mom who struggles in the techie department. Once Skylight is set up, loved ones can easily send new photos to the Skylight frame by simply emailing them and poof, the photos appear on the Skylight picture frame. Not gonna lie, I kind of love that I can control which photos will be displayed on my mom's Skylight. We all have our favorite angle, right? During a time when we all have to keep our distance from one another, Skylight is such a great way to stay in touch with family members and friends. You can send updated photos to the Skylight frame instantly and the person receiving them can tap the screen to thank the person who sent the photos. Skylight is so confident in their photo frame that they'll give you a full refund if you don't love your Skylight, which I'm positive won't be the case. I love that Skylight is interactive and looks beautiful in any house. Now, as a special holiday offer, you can get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight frame when you go to skylightframe.com murder and enter code murder. That's right. To get $10 off your purchase of a Skylight frame, just go to skylight.com slash murder and enter code murder. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash murder. Let's face it, right now we can all use a little less stress in our lives. Enter Endurance Warranty Total Vehicle Protection. Unfortunately, auto accidents happen all the time. Fortunately, with Endurance, you don't have to worry about the out-of-pocket costs for car repairs. With an Endurance subscription, you get the lowest prices available for auto repairs. And right now, Endurance is offering their elite membership with every subscription. And with that, you'll get 24-7 roadside assistance, key fob replacement, tire repair, and a personal concierge. I remember a minor collision I was in years ago and how stressful it was walking into the auto repair shop to find out what the damage was going to be to my bank account. Endurance takes that worry away. Protect yourself from high auto repair costs now with Endurance. For more information about Endurance's vehicle protection plans, visit endurancenow.com murderish. That's endurancenow.com murderish. On December 13th of 2010, Megan Waterman was the third body found. The 22-year-old had been missing since June 6th of that year. 
The Scarborough, Maine native was a young mother at the age of 17. Megan's pregnancy prompted her to move in with her mother, Lorraine Ella. This led to a shift in their previously strained relationship. Growing up, Megan's interactions with her mother had been limited. Lorraine struggled with alcoholism when Megan was just a baby. She was consequently taken into her grandmother's custody. Lorraine got sober when Megan was 15, and she was elated to get a second chance at a good mother-daughter relationship after learning of Megan's pregnancy. When Megan's daughter was born, Lorraine witnessed Megan blossom into a wonderful, nurturing mother. Lorraine had no idea that Megan was working as an escort. According to New York Magazine, she found out from a grocery store checkout clerk who had heard about it through the grapevine. Shortly after the birth of her daughter, Megan met a man named Akeem Cruz, otherwise known as Vibe. He was a drug dealer from the New York City area. Though Megan referred to him as her boyfriend, it is believed that he was also her pimp. Lorraine feels strongly Akeem forced Megan into prostitution. He accompanied her on calls and may have even posted her Craigslist ads himself. Megan was last seen on June 6th of 2010 at a Holiday Inn in Hopog, New York. She was awaiting a client from Craigslist. Though Akeem usually stayed with her during calls, this time he left her alone. He was out on bail after being arrested on a cocaine charge in Maine. Why he left her alone is uncertain, but he was the last person to see Megan alive besides her killer. In January of 2013, Akeem Cruz pleaded guilty to federal charges for transporting Megan Waterman across state lines for prostitution. He was sentenced to three years in prison. Though the judge made it clear there is insufficient evidence he was involved in Megan's death, it was acknowledged that he put her in harm's way. Shannon Gilbert was the catalyst for some sense of closure, maybe not for her own family, but definitely for the families of the Gilgo Four. Mary Gilbert, who communicated frequently with relatives of the other four women, was the loudest voice in the room, demanding justice. Shannon grew up in Ellenville, New York, a village in the Hudson Valley. She was the oldest of four sisters. Shortly after their mother, Mary, divorced their father, both Shannon and her sister Sarah were placed in foster homes. Shannon attended high school in New Paltz, New York, a college town which neighbors Ellenville. She graduated high school a year early and planned to pursue her dream of being a famous singer and a successful writer. After high school, Shannon began working odd jobs and saved her money. She tried to make ends meet by working as a hostess at Applebee's, a front desk manager at a local hotel, and even a snack prepper at a senior center. But like so many other young women who become sex workers, Shannon learned she could make $200 per hour by offering her services to men. At age 21, Shannon immersed herself in the escort industry. Shannon met the boyfriend she had up until her death through an escort agency called Lace Party Girls. Alex Diaz was employed by the agency to transport the girls and serve as a makeshift bodyguard if needed. But the company fell apart due to legal woes. Shannon relocated to New Jersey to move in with Alex, and this is when she picked up a drug habit. She needed to continue making money to support her habit, so Shannon decided to operate as an escort independently. Like the Gilgo Four, 
Shannon relied heavily on Backpage and Craigslist to draw in clients. We know more about Shannon's final hours than any other victim associated with this case. At around 2 in the morning on May 1st, Shannon was transported by her driver, Michael Pack, from Jersey City to Oak Beach. This journey took nearly 90 minutes, but the rate of $1,500 offered by the client made it worth the trip. This new client was 47-year-old Joseph Brewer, who was recently separated from his wife. The newfound bachelor lived a few doors down from the Oak Island Beach Association offices. Michael Pack parked his black SUV outside of Brewer's residence and waited for Shannon's cue that she was done for the night. Drivers like Michael generally get a cut of the escort's pay and serve as an on-call bodyguard. At around 3 a.m., phone records show that Shannon made six brief calls to Michael, asking him to run an errand to buy lubricant and playing cards. He refused, explaining that he was unfamiliar with the area. What happened inside Brewer's house that night remains unknown, but something made Shannon completely panic. At around 4.30 a.m., Michael Pack received a call from Brewer demanding that he pick up Shannon. He wanted her out of his house immediately and tried to forcibly remove her to no avail. Meanwhile, while hiding behind a couch in Brewer's house, Shannon dialed 911, breathlessly telling the operator, they're trying to kill me. Then, Shannon took off running, remaining on the line with the 911 operator for 23 minutes. She ran, terrified, in almost complete darkness, over the sand dunes and through the tangled reeds until she reached the door of 75-year-old Gus Coletti. Coletti was the former Oak Beach Association president and a retired insurance inspector. By this time, it was nearly five in the morning, and the first rays of dawn appeared. Coletti was in the middle of shaving when he answered the door, asking a terrified Shannon what was wrong, but no words came out of her mouth. Shannon just stared at him before she broke into a frantic run again. The sight of Shannon running for her life was the last Coletti or anyone would see of a girl who was clearly in some kind of danger. Moments later, a black SUV appeared driven by a small-framed Asian man who matched Michael Pack's description. He asked Coletti if he had seen a girl running through the area, saying that she had fled a party and seemed upset. Coletti admitted that he had already contacted emergency services, to which the Asian man responded, You should not have done that. She's going to be in a lot of trouble. The location of Oak Beach poses a specific type of predicament. The area is a designated state park. Therefore, the 911 call was rooted to state, not local, police. And, as previously mentioned, Jones Beach Island falls under two different county jurisdictions. This information, paired with its distance from major highways, delayed police in arriving at the scene. They finally showed up at 5.40 in the morning, but they were too late. Shannon had vanished and her body would not be found until a year and a half later. The transcript and recording of this 911 call may hold crucial details of the events that unraveled that night. In March of 2018, a lawsuit was filed by John Ray, the Gilbert family lawyer. A judge ordered Suffolk County Police to produce a recording of the 911 tape of Shannon, Gus Coletti, and Barbara Brennan a neighbor who overheard Shannon's screams. 
The police department has since filed an appeal, citing Shannon's death as inconclusive and stating the 911 tapes are part of an active investigation. Mary Gilbert refused to accept her daughter's death as an accident. She felt strongly there was something on those 911 calls the Suffolk County Police wanted to keep hidden. When Shannon's body was found on December 13th of 2011, the grieving mother felt no sense of closure. A few weeks after Shannon Gilbert's body was found, a vigil was held near Oak Beach. Shannon's mother, Mary, was joined by Lorraine Ella, Megan Waterman's mother, and Melissa Can, the sister of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. This horrific tragedy brought grieving strangers together, and although all were devastated by this, they found comfort in one another. All of them experienced a complete dismissal by police, all because their loved ones' professions as sex workers. The police investigation did not begin as soon as the Gilberts filed a missing persons report for Shannon. Eight days after she went missing, they were tired of waiting for something to be done, so the family drove 140 miles from their upstate New York home to Oak Beach. They took it upon themselves to start their own investigation, knocking on the doors of residents holding flyers in their hands. Though no one could say what happened to Shannon, they helped the Gilberts construct a loose timeline. Shannon went missing shortly after midnight. She had been hired by a client through Craigslist and was dropped off by her driver around 2 a.m. The client had told Shannon to leave his house, and she went into a panic. While on the line with 911, she ran down the dark road toward lights in the distance, and that led them to Gus Coletti's house. Coletti told the Gilberts Shannon was terrified of someone in the SUV following her. She hid behind a boat on his property, hoping to conceal herself, and then she took off running down the road. That was the last the retiree saw of Shannon. According to Coletti, when the police arrived on scene a while later, they didn't seem very concerned. Police would not return to question him until three months after the incident. According to CBS News, the Gilberts hounded the police for seven months before any official investigation began. Mary hired their attorney, John Ray, to assist them in a private investigation. In December of 2010, over a dozen law enforcement vehicles surrounded the two-story home of Joseph Brewer, the man who had hired Shannon the night she went missing. It turned out another detail had put him under strong suspicion. Brewer's Oak Beach house was located a mere three miles from where the four sets of skeletal remains were found. The FBI, Suffolk County Police, forensic investigators, and canine units all descended on his property. The Oak Beach home was a second property for the newfound bachelor. Brewer's primary residence was in West Islip, which he shared with his ex-wife, daughter, and elderly mother. Brewer cooperated with police and claimed he had nothing to do with the 23-year-old's disappearance. After questioning him, searching his Oak Beach residence, and seizing his vehicle, police ultimately decided that Brewer was not a suspect. When the driver was questioned, Michael Pack claimed he drove around looking for Shannon for hours after Brewer's call. By dawn, he gave up and drove home. Early in the investigation, Police also cleared Pack as a suspect. Richard Dormer, Suffolk County Commissioner at the time, immediately considered these murders the work of a serial killer. 
by June of 2011, police were offering a reward of $25,000 for any tips leading to the arrest of the man deemed the Gilgo Beach killer, the Craigslist killer, and the Long Island serial killer by press. This was the highest reward offered in Suffolk County history. Investigators developed a criminal profile of the suspected killer based on what they knew. They concluded it was a man in his mid-20s to mid-40s, highly intelligent and wealthy, with a highly sadistic streak. He could potentially be a seasonal visitor since all the victims disappeared between Memorial Day and Labor Day. After Shannon Gilbert's remains were found in December of 2011, an autopsy was performed. No drugs were found in her system. Police initially listed her cause of death as drowning. Their theory was that Shannon had taken off running, became entangled in the tall thickets, and accidentally drowned in the marsh. The Gilberts were incredulous about the initial autopsy findings. The family jumped at the chance to have a second autopsy performed by Dr. Michael Baden, a renowned forensic pathologist and former chief medical examiner of the city of New York. Dr. Baden played a pivotal role in several high-profile cases, such as John F. Kennedy, O.J. Simpson, Aaron Hernandez, and Sid Vicious. Due to a missing larynx and fractures in parts of her neck, Dr. Baden concluded that Shannon's wounds were consistent with homicidal strangulation. To this day, however, Suffolk County Police maintain Shannon Gilbert's death may not be related to the murder of the Gilgo Four. In December of 2015, then-Police Commissioner Tim Seney announced the FBI had been officially pulled into the investigation. Prior to that, the FBI had only assisted in the search for bodies. Former Police Commissioner James Burke had reportedly kept the FBI in the dark throughout the investigation, significantly limiting their involvement. When Burke resigned in October of 2015, it was because he was indicted for alleged police brutality. The Gilbert family's attorney targeted Burke as a potential suspect when details about his extracurricular activities emerged. James Burke was rumored to have participated in wild sex parties involving escorts. These salacious gatherings occurred in the same area where the decomposed bodies were later found and during the time he was police commissioner. In 2011, an escort hired for a party Burke attended came forward. John Ray, the Gilbert family's lawyer, had the woman sign an affidavit. She testified in a press conference that Burke treated women in a rough, domineering manner. It was pretty damning evidence, but Burke still was not pursued as a suspect. In November of 2016, Burke was sentenced to 46 months in federal prison for conspiring to cover up an assault. He had attacked an addict in custody who had broken into his car and stolen a duffel bag filled with sex toys and pornography. No charges were made regarding Burke's obstruction of the Shannon Gilbert investigation. Another potential suspect was Dr. Peter Hackett, a former Suffolk County Police Department surgeon who had a home in Oak Beach. He reportedly ran a home for wayward girls. According to Shannon's mother, Mary, Dr. Hackett had called two days after Shannon's disappearance to say that he had administered some kind of tranquilizer medication the night she went missing. A few days later, Dr. Hackett would deny this call ever happened. 
he has long been suspected of inserting himself into major cases. As recently as July of 2017, a prosecutor from the Suffolk County DA's office singled out John Bitroff as a suspect in the Long Island serial killer case. Bitroff, a 51-year-old Manorville, New York native and respected carpenter, was sentenced to 50 years to life in prison for the strangulation and murder of two sex workers in the 1990s. The bodies of Rita Tangretti and Colleen McNamee were dumped in a wooded area between Manorville and Patchogee. The killings committed by the Long Island serial killer could extend as far back as 1996. A couple who were out for a quiet stroll on neighboring Fire Island encountered two severed legs wrapped in plastic. Forensic experts compared DNA from the legs and the bodies discovered on Oak Beach between 2010 and 2011. This testing returned a match. Some theorize that these bodies could be linked to Joel Rifkin, who killed up to 17 women on Long Island in the late 1980s to early 1990s. Dominic Veroni, retired chief of detectives, spoke to the news media in December of 2019 about persisting misconceptions regarding the Long Island serial killer case. He doesn't believe the real culprit lived on Oak Beach at all. He believes it may have been used as a dumping ground by one or multiple killers who resided in Manhattan. Some of the victims' families continue to believe that police are not trying their hardest to find the killer or killers due to societal bias about sex workers. On January 16th of 2020, new evidence about the case was released to the public. Suffolk County Police Commissioner Geraldine Hart unveiled images of a belt found at the crime scene back in 2011. Embossed in the leather are the initials HM or MH, depending on which way the belt is viewed. Investigators believe the belt belonged to the man responsible for the murders. It remains a matter of speculation why police released a piece of evidence that had been in their custody for nine years. Perhaps this was done in an effort to show the surviving family members the hunt for the killer is still ongoing. Mary Gilbert, who'd fought so hard to get justice for her daughter, would end up losing her own life at the hands of her daughter, Sarah Gilbert. In July of 2016, Sarah Gilbert murdered her mother, Mary, by stabbing her over 200 times. Sarah had a history of mental illness and resented her mother for reporting her to authorities for drowning a puppy. Sarah was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. Mary Gilbert would never live to see her daughter Shannon's killer brought to justice. Renewed interest has been brought to the case with the premiere of the March 2020 Netflix film Lost Girls. The film is a dramatization of a 2013 book of the same title, written by Robert Kolker. The book brings to light more details about the victims' upbringings and the events leading up to their premature deaths. The women who fell victim to a potential serial killer were also casualties of life circumstances. Their socioeconomic status played a pivotal role in their fates, much like those killed by Jack the Ripper. Melissa Bartholomew, Amber Lynn Costello, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Megan Waterman, and Shannon Gilbert all became sex workers as a means of survival. They took measures to protect themselves from predators as best they could 
and yet they still were met with peril. Today, nearly a decade after this case began, the families of these women still cling to the hope that one or multiple killers will be identified. More than anything, it's important to remember the victims as daughters, granddaughters, sisters, mothers. These victims were human and stumbling through the unknown trying to attain happiness. As of today, the Long Island serial killer remains at large. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Head over to the Murderish Facebook discussion group where we can talk about this case. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod or on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. If you like the show, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about Murderish. I'd love for you to leave the show a review in your favorite podcast app. If you'd like more information about the show or me, go to Murderish.com. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon and have some of your dollars donated to the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. The website also has a link to buy Murderish t-shirts and other merchandise. That's Murderish.com. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music is by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. In order to tell true crime stories on this show, information is gathered from various sources, including but not limited to news articles, newspaper archives, blogs, social media, TV productions, police reports, court records, books, magazine articles, direct interviews, and more. I recognize that oftentimes someone before me put in a lot of time and effort to gather information I draw from to help tell these stories. Thank you to those individuals for their hard work. Sources for this episode can be found at Murderish.com. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. <laughs>